to build a very general business like Amazon takes a ton of money, which most people won't have access to. So if you are running a smaller business, you need to think about with the resources you have, what can you do now? And that's where trying to dominate a very tiny niche is, is accessible. You can always branch out once you build a base of cash flow and think as big as Jeff Bezos. But in the beginning, you've got to start somewhere. Welcome to Smashing the Plateau. We help you get unstuck so you can do what you love and get paid what you're worth consistently. I'm your host, David Schreiner Khan. Today, I welcome back to Smashing the Plateau, journalist and author of Tiny Business, Big Money, Elaine Pofeld. Have you started your own one-person or very tiny business following a long corporate career to have more control over your work while supporting your lifestyle? On today's episode, Elaine shares what she learned about what leads to huge profits for tiny businesses as she researched and wrote her latest book, Tiny Business, Big Money. Stay with us to hear all the details. One of the characteristics that Elaine mentioned is connecting with other entrepreneurs that may have experience in areas that you don't. The camaraderie of supportive collaborative colleagues is the foundation of the Smashing the Plateau community. Inside the Smashing the Plateau community, you'll also find a range of tools and resources to support your business, access to experts, and answers to your burning questions. Check out the Smashing the Plateau community so that you can build a successful consulting business on your own terms, doing what you love and getting paid what you're worth. Learn more at smashingtheplateau.com slash community. That's smashingtheplateau.com slash community. Now let's welcome... Elaine Pofeld, journalist and author of Tiny Business, Big Money. Elaine, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, David. It's great to be here. So you've been busy since the last time you were on. I know as a journalist, you certainly spent a lot of time writing all kinds of things about uh, business in particular. Why did you decide to write this book, Tiny Business, Big Money? One thing I noticed, David, was when I was updating the million-dollar one-person business that some of the entrepreneurs in it were no longer one-person businesses, and they had scaled by adding maybe one or two people, or they had built an extended team of contractors that met on a regular basis, people that had to be managed as opposed to the random bookkeeper or accountant who might help you occasionally. And some of them were really struggling with it. And I thought, wow, there must be people one step ahead of where they are in the progression of building their business who we can learn from, who are doing things in unique ways using the technology we have today and newer business methods that maybe didn't come from corporate America but are working for them. Is the addition of team members the thing that's most in common with the businesses you profiled? That is the common thread. These are businesses that have started to scale, whether they're going to scale to two people or scale to hundreds, we don't know yet. Some of them are very committed to having a small boutique business, but what they all have in common is that they have a tiny team. Okay. And what else can you tell me about the business models that they are employing besides adding teams? What else might be either very strikingly similar to those that you profiled in your book about one-person businesses, or maybe they have something in common that's different than those one-person businesses? 
One thing they do have in common is that when they're getting work done in the business, it isn't all done by the owner, which is something in common with the businesses in the million dollar one person business. But these businesses are a little further along in that progression. Usually what will happen is they start with automation to try to offload some of the work and free up the time of the owner so that they can focus on things like big ticket sales, for instance, that an automated tool cannot do. Then they might go to automation plus contractors. I have a chapter in this book called Set Yourself Up for Success that has case studies of what these look like in real life. Um, Then what will happen is they might start adding an employee to that mix. And then sometimes what happens is once they add the employee, they decide to go the employee route and start reducing contractors Sometimes in the mix, there's there's outsourcing. So for instance, you might outsource to Fulfilled by Amazon. That's not really using contractors. That's, that's a service. And then partnerships was an interesting one too, where sometimes these people build up the business to the point that it's very successful. And then they bring in a partner who gets equity in exchange for managing the back end so they can move on to their next idea. Because as we both know, entrepreneurs have a million ideas for their next venture and they get bored after a while. So that was really interesting to me to sort of see if I interviewed almost 60 entrepreneurs for the book and I saw this progression and how they were doing it. You know, what one interesting thing was the documentation involved. Our, our mutual friend Jamie J is a master of this, right? In, in uh, documenting how things are done, so you can bring on people and not have to watch over them constantly, so they know exactly what the steps are and what good looks like. And Angie and Colin Raja, one of the couples that I profiled in this book, they have an e-commerce store that sells CrossFit equipment, but the focus has been more on um, colors that they feel will appeal more to women. And they scaled up to about 20 um, employees in India. And as they did that, Angie is really great about documenting all of the processes and procedures so they know how to respond to a customer email. And there's testing around that when they take people on to make sure that they have the soft skills as well as the hard skills to do these things correctly. And if not, to give them training that they need. Uh, So that that was interesting for me to see, really going under the hood as to how to do this well. And all of the businesses have hit seven figures and they tend to be in certain niches, which we can get into later. Yeah. Elaine, is there a particular order that you find it's really important to follow for a business that wants to grow in the way that you've just described? Because you mentioned things like automation, contractors, employees, documentation, and possibly partnerships. Well, automation is always a low-hanging fruit. Even if you're not a techie, there's so many apps and tools that are designed for non-techies that there's not really any reason to be afraid. I mean, some things are a little more advanced than others, but for instance, if your email inbox is a big mess, there are ways to sort it that a lot of these people use using different tools you can add on to your mailbox. You don't need to hire an admin to do that. That's going to be much more costly with an admin. So always look to technology where you can and bring on people where only a person can do that work you know, where that extra warmth, you know how it feels when you get a bot and you have a customer service complaint. I know big companies do it, but one of the 
the um, sweet spots of having a very small business is it is more personal and that is something people like about it. They like being able to get through to real people. So I think that's a strength you should lean into, but not lean into using people for just tedious, mundane things. Right. Is there a question that you should ask yourself when it comes to issues or areas of your business that could be automated, the questions that may trigger, oh yeah, this is something that I should look into automating? My business coach taught me an exercise that I thought was very helpful. And I'm about to do it again, which is, and he actually works with middle market CEOs. He said, create a spreadsheet where you track every hour of the day and what you're doing in those hours for a couple of weeks and then study it, look at it, each box and see if there are things in there that could best be done by somebody else or done by an automated tool. And that's very telling because you don't realize how these things are slipping in. Even I'm very committed to doing this, but I didn't notice that I was actually wasting a lot of time dealing with transcripts. During the pandemic, one thing that happened in my business was a lot of the journalism clients were challenged. So I refocused a little more on ghostwriting. Ghostwriting involves a lot of transcripts. Sometimes the client would like a transcript, so I don't want to send them my sloppy notes. And that takes time. So one of the things I'm working on right now is finding a really good AI transcript solution. I know, for instance, Zoom has one on the paid Zoom that you can turn it on when you do a Zoom call and you automatically get a transcript and that only costs $20 a month. So that's affordable for a lot of people. So I'm going to try that one. I don't know if it's perfect, but that's the thing to do is just make sure there's been no slippage of just boring and mundane tasks that could really be done by someone else. So you can be really focusing on the creative work. Like for me, it would be writing the actual book for the client, right? Not doing the transcript. And there are other things where maybe you can start bringing in an assistant, like double checking details, you know, like someone's title, if you're writing a letter, you know, and you need to have their title correct. If you have an assistant, you can't really do that with AI, but should you be doing it? No, probably not. So you could batch tasks like that, get a virtual assistant to do, you know, a few hours a week for you, for starters. And it forces you to really think about what needs to be done in a week too, to when you have to batch it. You have to actually think about what it is so you you don't hire the assistant to do one five-minute task and then they have nothing else to do. I really recommend that. It's also important to look at slippage in your personal life that might be cutting into your work time. Right, because you could automate things in your personal life and you can also outsource or delegate aspects of what supports your personal life. Exactly. I I was talking with an entrepreneur who has an apartment in New York City and she said, she had been resisting the idea of hiring a cleaning service because it just seemed too indulgent. You know, she just felt guilty about it, but then she did it. She couldn't believe how much better she felt. And it just freed up a lot of mental space. That wasn't something in her business, but everybody lives somewhere and you have to keep it tidy somehow. Or if you're living in clutter, it's probably distracting you. So, so that was, you know, it was hard for her and she looked at it as an experiment where she would just try it. It was a little bit expensive, but she felt like she was much more committed to using the time that she freed up to bring in revenue into her business. So there's also a psychological thing that might occur when you create space in your life. One of the things that's interesting to me about businesses is we're drawn to them because they can create freedom for us. 
But then when you're in them, you can be your own worst jailer, right? Just trapping yourself with all kinds of tasks, working around the clock. There's always more opportunity to tap into. So I think as entrepreneurs, we're so enthusiastic. We have to really rein things in a little bit on that front. Um, And sometimes you don't realize you're doing it until you create the mental space to really take an objective look at, at how you're living your life and see if there can be improvements. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I can't tell you how many clients I've had this discussion with where they have gone into their business because they want freedom. They want control over their time and and um, they're not opposed to structure, but they don't want somebody else creating the structure that they have to follow. But after they've created the business and the business is sustainable, they're spending a lot of time working in the business and then they feel like they have basically created uh, for themselves a glorified job where they don't have an external boss. They have um, an even more challenging boss, which is themselves. <laughs> so, it's so funny how we're so hard on ourselves. I think because a lot of times it's enthusiasm, right? We actually, I love my writing work. I, that's why I do it. But I can go overboard with it. I always tell my family I live on the planet overdue. And it's really important to block out time. I find that for a lot of these folks, they're very protective of their calendar. And they might have, you know, Friday is a creativity day for R&D and nothing else. Or Friday is daddy-daughter day. They do things proactively to make sure they rein in that tendency because they're aware of it. I think it's an occupational hazard of people that start businesses and they they put some checks and balances in place so that they don't lose all the excitement about their business. Yeah. Now, speaking about starting businesses, Elaine, what percentage of the folks that you interviewed for your book were employees first for a significant period of time before they started their businesses? You know, I didn't take stock of that, but I think the majority had mentioned jobs. So Often what happens is people have a job they don't like, and that's when they turn to businesses. We see this with the Great Resignation, where I think 5 million people registered businesses last year, according to SCORE. And that's up from about 2 million about four years ago. You can fact check me on that one. But it's it's a significant jump. And I think what happens is people reach the point where they can no longer continue in their work for whatever reason, a need for greater flexibility. They feel like they're being forced to be less than their whole self at work. They're not given opportunities to reach their potential or there's so much work they can never get caught up and they're not being paid enough for what they do. They start to plan ahead a little bit and think about, well, could there be a different way to live my life? And that prompts them to start businesses. There are some people that are serial entrepreneurs. For instance, one entrepreneur, Anthony Coombs, he started Splendies, which is a box company like Birchbox. But what it sells is sexy lingerie in plus sizes. And he's created all kinds of businesses. He was he created an app to help people meet other people in close proximity. He was selling automobiles online before it was popular to do that. He went to University of Pennsylvania and he actually had an internship in politics and he was very disillusioned because he found that the politician that he was working for never really had time to meet with constituents because he was always meeting with large donors. So he quit and he became a waiter and that 
touched off his desire in part to be an entrepreneur. He had also had an early experience in childhood where his mother was a public employee in Florida. She was a single parent and there was a change of governors and she lost her job and they went into financial devastation. And he said, I'll never work for anybody else again. So these combined factors then contributed when he graduated to him starting businesses. The first one, I believe that he started was a mosaic tile selling operation. And then he started going into all these different areas. He's more of a person who loves entrepreneurship rather than the specific business where some people are a fitness entrepreneur and they could never sell anything other than their fitness services. He's somewhat agnostic, I think, about the type of business. He's more motivated by the joy of building businesses. So he, I don't think he had really a long career in jobs, but the, most of the people did. Right. And now you just mentioned in in this particular example, um, and you referred to it earlier, um, some very narrow target markets and very narrow offerings. So what is it about finding something that's very narrow, a niche that works particularly well for tiny businesses? To build a very general business like Amazon takes a ton of money which most people won't have access to. So if you are running a smaller business, you need to think about with the resources you have, what can you do now? And that's where trying to dominate a very tiny niche is is accessible. You can always branch out once you build a base of cash flow and think as big as Jeff Bezos. But in the beginning, you've got to start somewhere. And to be fair, Jeff Bezos started out with something very narrow too. He was just just selling books online. Right, which was something he he took something that was that was being sold and found a different way to sell it, and he he was just selling books for a long time before he branched out. That's a good point. I guess we all think of Amazon as what it is today, but I remember that story of him driving across the country and working on the business plan. And from when I was at Fortune Small Business Magazine, that was a while back. It is true. I mean, he did branch out and build on on something small. I guess books is pretty big, but it's small relative to the universe of what he now sells. Correct. Right. But anyway, you were saying that um, it's much easier to find something that's where you can dominate a very narrow sphere. Exactly. And, And you can really learn it better than anyone else if it's really that niche down. In the case of Anthony Coombs, he found out about this opportunity from one of his cousins who said, that there uh, just wasn't somebody providing this. And the box company area was pretty saturated. There are a lot of uh, box companies out there because of the success of Birchbox. And he found that there was a big response that two organic Facebook groups sprung up among women that like were so excited about this concept and they would even trade the products. Like if they got a new set of underwear that was uh, not to their liking, they would trade it with someone else who liked it. And he also targeted, he did a lot of online research and he found there were certain parts of the country where this was more popular because stores were further away. So in more, like Alaska is a big market for him, which is interesting because someone has to drive a long way maybe to go to store where they can buy their underwear. So that, I thought that was just interesting, you know, to understanding how entrepreneurs think about these things. And he, he then doubled down on his marketing in those areas. And it's a lesson for anybody. You don't have to be selling underwear <laughs> to do that. A lot of them have narrow niches and that's great. A lot of the niches tap into 
what they learned in a corporate career. One example is a company called Message Pay, which um, Greg Pesci is the founder, and he is over 50. And he did have a corporate career as a corporate attorney, but then he felt like he wanted a little more time than that allowed to spend with his family as a big family. And so he became an entrepreneur. And initially he started a, um, a community for freelancers. And then that that was a very saturated market. And there were some very big players in it already, like Upwork and places like that. So then he started looking into other things and he had a background in finance and banking And he hired a team of developers to build an app that sends bills by text message. You've probably gotten a link from somebody like your utility company where it says to pay your January bill, click here. And what he did was offer this to banks and financial services companies because he knew that world and he knew that compliance was difficult in that industry specifically. So that would be a barrier to entry for other people that did not know their way around it and didn't have relationships. And so that's how he built the business. It's over $1 million with just a handful of people working there. So it could be something from your past, which is really, I think it's encouraging for people that all that work they put into their careers can be repurposed and into something else. One of the things I did, David, in this book that's different from the first book is There's census data in there, but what it looks at is the businesses that have the highest financial potential based on averaging out their revenue and averaging out their payroll and subtracting average payroll from average revenue. Why payroll? Because payroll is often the biggest expense in most employer businesses, and it's hard to get data on other costs from the Census Bureau. So... I organized those according to which ones had the most money left over. And you'll see there are a lot of very niche businesses just to give you an idea. And one other thing I should say is that does not equal profit because there are other costs in these businesses. And what I recommend for people to do, um, the Stern School of Business at NYU keeps running data on the average profit of each industry. So if you see one in the tables in the back of the book that looks interesting to you, it would be a good idea to look at their data and look at market research on that industry to see what the true costs are. And there's a lot of information in the book on how to do that, including looking at businesses that are up for sale. And they often provide their financials if you're an interested buyer and they'll put some teasers in their listings on biz buy sell and other things so you need to do your homework but what i thought was really interesting for businesses from zero to four employees the one that came in first was casinos who knew right and it turns out there are these little gas station casinos i'm not recommending people start those because it's just so niche and you'd probably have to be in the industry and people might have objections to it in general. The second one was creamery butter. So it turns out butter creameries are heavily automated. That could be a nice artisanal business for someone who knows their way around the dairy industry. Ethyl alcohol was number three. So this is probably ethanol manufacturing, but these are businesses that are being run with four employees or less. And I think that was really telling that you could even do some of these things with fewer. What I then did was my own analysis, combining what I learned from that with what the entrepreneurs were saying and their case studies, because just saying, you know, everybody should run a casino just makes no sense to me. 
But looking at the bigger patterns, like business to business e-commerce was a big area. And that was across the different size staff that I had. I, I organized it by zero to four employees, five to nine and 10 to 19. And that was consistently there. And I found that those types of case studies were coming up a lot. So that's where you can start to get market intelligence. One example would be Aparva Batra. He started a business called Flexible Pouches, and he was a former Chevron engineer. He was in his 20s, but he just didn't like the corporate life. And he started researching what kind of business could I start where it has great income potential, but it will also allow me to travel around the world, which is his passion. And what he sells are those plastic bags inside of cereal boxes and pharmaceuticals, the dullest product that you can ever imagine, really. But his business is exciting. And he, what he did was he targeted small and mid-sized businesses because the big cereal makers already have their, their manufacturer. They are needing the bags at such a great scale. It would be hard to work with a small business to provide them. He tried initially marketing at trade shows, but he found online actually worked really well for this segment. And so now he could travel all over the place. He wasn't doing much of that during COVID, but now he can be back to that. And they just place the orders online. And a lot of the processes are automated. He has a few employees, but it's it's a very lean little business and it brings in about $3 million a year. Very profitable. So those types of millionaire next door businesses, I think, offer people a lot of excitement. If you, I mean, some people might not be able to sell plastic bags. They would not be interested enough in it. But if you think like an entrepreneur that, you know, how do I use my capital to make more money from something and be really creative in how I run the business, you could get a lot of excitement out of it and a really great lifestyle. Elaine, since finding these narrow niches that you can dominate is so important, one of the challenges I see with entrepreneurs that have left corporate after a long career is their challenge in, in even trying to think about a niche. It's like somebody who's a vice president of marketing. Well, I can create marketing strategies for anybody. What's one piece of advice you can offer that will help them understand how they can look for and find a very narrow niche that's going to help them dominate the marketplace in that niche? I think it helps to do it slowly. There's a whole feeling of overwhelm that I think people who have been in corporate experience when they transition to being entrepreneurs, because you're so rule bound in corporate situations. I think about it just because I'm a freelancer. Sometimes I'm on my own team. Sometimes I'm on very small teams. Sometimes I'm on corporate teams. On the corporate teams, I'm not going to say a word in a meeting unless I've prepared a slide deck or I've researched what I'm going to say. There's not a lot of sort of ripping and spitballing going on. It's just not the culture of big corporations. They're much more formal. So if you're used to that, then you're in the world of entrepreneurship where an opportunity presents itself like making masks during the pandemic. And you're not presenting it to 20 people and having it vetted by a whole team. You might be confident in it, but you might have to change your way of thinking a little bit to jump on that opportunity. And that takes time. So you have to give yourself some grace and say, 
I'm going to dip a toe in the water, sometimes doing things part-time and testing it to see if it actually works. Because ideas can be great on paper, but then turns out there's no product market fit or the market doesn't want this service or your pricing is wrong, or there's a host of things that can happen. And you can, if you're, if you're doing a product-based business, there are a lot of small tests you can do. Two things that interested me, Anna Gavia is a maker of bikinis and she was a medical student in Australia and she loves sketching just as a stress reliever, a pastime, etc. She went on Alibaba. She found a factory and asked them to make the prototype of one bikini. She only had $200 to invest in this business being a student. And she put up a picture of the bikini on Instagram and used Facebook ads to drive traffic to this And then she saw if she would get pre-orders or not. And she got a thousand pre-orders. So she knew women will buy this bikini. So she went back to the factory, which was a small factory and willing to do limited runs. Factories, just for the benefit of people that haven't manufactured, they don't like to do small runs because it costs a certain amount to run the factory, you know, to get the labor there, to turn on all the machines and everything else. So they don't want to do it generally, but this factory wanted to grow with her. So it took some legwork. She actually went to China. She was in Australia, so it's not that far away and um, found one. And that is what she's done with every single bikini. Her business is called Pink Colada. And now she's expanding into the U.S. based on doing that kind of semi-scientific testing of her products. Another entrepreneur who has a similar approach is Jason Vandergrant. He has a more of a service-based business where he does CAD design. It's an engineering type of design, and he's got about 40 contractors. He's one of the uh, small percentage of employee of um, businesses in the book that don't have any employees, but he's got about 40 contractors and they function almost as quasi-employees, except they're all around the world and et cetera. So what he does is he'll get a GoDaddy website, and I think it costs about $30 for the month, and he'll put up a a drawing or prototype of his idea, and then it drives traffic to it with Facebook ads and does the same thing. He sees if he gets inquiries, and if nobody's interested, then he just shuts it all down. He spent like 30 bucks on it and maybe his design time, and then he moves on. And the reason he does this is because One of his first ventures was a business that was an app. It sold, it it helped people find designer sunglasses for discount prices. And he launched it. He spent $29,000 on it. And then he discovered the market was already saturated with this type of app and it wasn't worth it to even keep running it. So he had an expensive lesson, but it's now helped him to avoid other expensive lessons Um, So those are two things that you can do as an entrepreneur. I think it's also helpful to have a buddy who's a little bit ahead of you, if you can find one by going to events where when you're not so sure about the niche, you know, someone who's a little more experienced in your industry, who can be a sounding board, someone who you trust to share confidential business information so you don't give up too soon. Because there might be something you don't know about. We don't always know what we don't know. Maybe they know of some way that you could test it. And like, for instance, in marketing, there's a service called PICFU, P-I-C-K-F-U. And it allows you to do polls of targeted demographics. So you might, maybe you came up with a product 
and you want to see if they like the looks of it, you could say, I would like to test this product on military veterans ages 18 to 55. Well, they wouldn't be 18, I guess, right? So like say 30 to 55. And then they provide comments and the, the comments can be quite thoughtful. It's very inexpensive, but there are tools like that that maybe someone in marketing would know because it's, it's, it's mostly used by people who are marketing something. So asking around can help you as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Elaine, we, we've we've covered so much territory about uh, just some of the aspects of what causes these tiny businesses to be successful. If somebody wants to learn more about this topic, get access to your book, Tiny Business, Big Money, or access any other resources that you may have, where would be the best place for them to go? Well, they, they can um, find the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other major booksellers, Um my website under my full name, elainepofeld.com, is a good place to reach me through the contact box, or um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. I love when people write to me. It makes me a better journalist, and I do write back, and um, I would be delighted to hear from your listeners, David. Yeah. So, Elaine, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us again on Smashing the Plateau. Congratulations on the publication of Tiny Business, Big Money. It's a great book. My guest today has been journalist and author, Elaine Pofeld. Thank you again, Elaine, for joining us. Thank you so much, David. Great to be here. When you visit the Smashing the Plateau website at smashingtheplateau.com, you'll find a summary of each episode along with the links we mentioned on the show. On today's episode, Elaine Pofeld shared what she learned about what leads to huge profits for tiny businesses as she researched and wrote her latest book, Tiny Business, Big Money. One of the characteristics that Elaine mentioned is connecting with other entrepreneurs that may have experience in areas that you don't. The camaraderie of supportive collaborative colleagues is the foundation of the Smashing the Plateau community. Inside the Smashing the Plateau community, you'll also find a range of tools and resources to support your business, access to experts, and answers to your burning questions. Check out the Smashing the Plateau community so that you can build a successful consulting business on your own terms, doing what you love and getting paid what you're worth. Learn more at smashingtheplateau.com community. That's smashingtheplateau.com community. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show. I'll see you on our next episode.